Father God, I need more. Our church needs more. My family needs more. I want more. I want more hope, more joy, more peace, more love. I want the fullness of life that Jesus offers. Father, saturate my soul with your spirit so that I overflow with Jesus. I want more. But I confess I'm full of everything but Jesus. I've loaded my mind with so much noise that it's weary and worried. I've heaped stuff upon my soul that's left little space for the spirit who truly satisfies. I filled my time with my own agenda. I'm full, but it's not you. Something has to go. I'm bringing you everything, not you, that fills me up. I open my hands in a posture of surrender. Empty me. The noise, the distractions, the clutter, the fears, my attempts to control, my bitterness, my wounds. The burdens I've tried to carry on my own, my attempts to control, my stuff, even me. Empty me of me. With open hands, I surrender everything, not you. Empty me so you can fill me with joy and peace that overflows in hope. Empty me so you can saturate my soul with your spirit. Empty me so I can abound with the life coming from your hand. Fill us so full that we can't help but overflow with Jesus. Fill our families with your presence. Fill our neighborhoods with your love. Fill our valleys with the knowledge of your glory. Fill us so full that we can't help but overflow with Jesus. Amen. Hey, welcome to Calvary and our 50-day journey of Less for More. We've been looking at a, a series of emptying practices that help us make space for God, like like silence and solitude and, and surrender and simplicity. Last week was forgiveness, and, and this week is fasting. And just to, to let you know, here's where we're headed. When we come to the end of the message, I'm going to encourage you to consider over the next couple of weekends to make a fasting and prayer commitment. So that's, that's where we're headed. Now, fasting is a fascinating spiritual practice. If you think about it, fasting is, is really the foundation. It's the bedrock discipline of every emptying practice we've talked about. We typically think of fasting from food, fasting from eating, and, and that's normal. And I'm going to encourage you to do that. But, but silence is fasting from noise. Solitude is fasting from people in person and virtual social media. Surrender is fasting from control. Simplicity is fasting from stuff. Forgiveness is fasting from being offended and bitter. And the discipline of napping, that's fasting from kids. Now you're going to have to figure that one out. On your own. But in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus talks about three core spiritual practices prayer, generosity, and fasting he uses the word when, not if. When, not if. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. See, Jesus expected a thriving spiritual life to include the practice of fasting. Jesus practiced fasting. It was a significant part of his 40 days in the wilderness where he prepared for the ministry that was yet to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my faith heroes, a spiritual mentor of sorts. He was an innovative spiritual thinking, but I I gained most from him because of the way he lived his life. And and his most well-known book is The Cost of Discipleship. And he writes these words about that book. He said, I sat down to write a book on the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we've been the last few weeks. He said, but I got no further than the eight Beatitudes. The more I studied them, the more I realized that Christ was giving a formula for personal happiness that applies to anyone. 
The Beatitudes, Bonhoeffer wrote, are revolutionary. They're startling, deeply profound, and yet amazingly simple. If applied on a universal scale, they could transform the world in which we live. Applied in your own personal life, you, he wrote, you can never be the same. Now, it kind of sounds like a, a self-help marketing soundbite, right? Tired of living in your empty valleys, want to rise above your problems? Come up to the mountain and learn the latest on successful living, brought to you by the greatest sensation in Galilee. You've heard about him, now it's your turn. Full satisfaction guaranteed. Man, we hear so many satisfaction guaranteed promises in a lifetime that we either, we either quit listening or we get skeptical and cynical, like who is this guy, what are his qualifications, because honestly, I don't want to learn parenting from someone who's never had kids. I don't want to go to a seminar on marriage taught by a panel from the latest contestants of The Bachelor, and I don't want to learn about satisfaction from someone who's never been satisfied. But but then you, you start to dig into Jesus, and and you see how he lived, and, and how he died, and what he started, and how he loved people, and made a difference in the world. And, and you start thinking, okay, maybe he's got something. Maybe we can learn something from Jesus. And, and sometimes we get this picture of Jesus all meek and mild and okay when it comes to spiritual stuff in church, but throw him out into the real world, world and what, what does he do? He gets crucified. I mean, he was so much more. I mean, if Jesus had set his sights on teaching, he would have been professor of the century, wisdom beyond knowledge and amazing ability to communicate. If he had set his sights on power, politics, leadership, he would have been unstoppable. As a friend, he was beyond compare. As a servant, he changed the paradigms. As a man of character, no one loved with as much integrity as he did. He blew the religious leaders away with his miracles. He blew the political leaders away with his wisdom. He was a man who would sacrifice his reputation for a prostitute and his life for an enemy. And, and, you know, for centuries, even people who don't believe he's God have sought to study him and know him. And, and the people of his day sought too. He had it all. <laughs> and if he didn't have it, he could get it. And so his Kingdom Life seminar was standing room only. I'm telling you, there were crowds from Galilee and the ten cities of Decapolis, Jerusalem, and, and, and way beyond the Jordan to Syria. People were coming to him to learn the secrets of, of a life that was full of life. But when Jesus looks at the crowd, he sees, he sees deep where the hunger is. People hungry for something more than the life that they're living in. So he takes us up on a mountain away from all the fullness and chaos of the world to attend his seminar. And he begins to speak in Matthew 5, 1 through 6. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. Now, every week in this journey, we've come back to some version of that question. Am I living a satisfied life? What fills me up? What needs to be emptied out so that I can be filled with something that satisfies me? And and that process of being emptied and filled, it It requires more than a microwaved moment. It requires a season. In fact, it's part of what John Ortberg calls a 40-day story. 
Now, if you think about this, the Bible is full of 40-day stories and three-day stories, right? We're, we're going to pause for this message in the Old Testament book of Jonah because it contains one of the most inspiring stories of fasting in all of Scripture. But you know, I love the fact that Jonah contains both a three-day story and a 40-day story. Uh, in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, here, here's what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give to you. And so Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began, he began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, if you know anything about the history of Nineveh, it was a wicked city filled with arrogance and racial injustice and the persecution of God's people. It, it, it took Jonah three days to walk through the city telling the people of Nineveh they had 40 days before God's judgment. But if you know the story of Jonah, you may remember it was a three-day story that brought him to Nineveh. Three days Jonah spent in the belly of a whale because he was trying to run from God. So so three-day stories are stories of quick redemption, problem solved, hope regained, darkness changed to light in the space of a long weekend, microwaved hope. We we all love three-day stories. When Philly plays 55 minutes of terrible football and then Jalen Hurts throws a 60-yard game-winning touchdown with seconds left, that's a three-day story. The hero saves the day. When you go through a weekend of relational hell, but Friday night, he shows up with roses and a crumble cookie and says, I'm sorry you were a jerk. No, I mean, I was a jerk. You kiss and make up. That's a three-day story. And and the Bible is full of three-day stories. Stories of desperation and hope obliterated until God comes to the rescue. The hero comes through. Tragedy averted. Hope restored. Mess redeemed. The people of Israel spent 40 years years wondering and finally they're at the borders of their promised land but they're so filled with hopelessness and fear they they can't even imagine taking another step and so what does God tell them he says be strong and courageous three days from now you'll cross the Jordan and go in and take possession of the land your God has given you God showed up and parted the Jordan three-day story prophet Hosea starts a three-day story imagines it in Hosea 6 with his call come He says to his people, come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us to live in his presence. And then, of course, there's Jonah, swallowed by a great fish, hanging out at the very bottom of the ocean, surrounded by darkness, helpless and hopeless. All he can do is cry out to God. And so in Jonah 2, 1, it says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And what was Jonah praying? He's praying, God, save me. <laughs> it doesn't say it in the text, but I'm guessing it was God, save me and let me go out the same way I came in. And on which day was Jonah saved? The third day. I mean, the very essence of our faith is the three-day story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus said Jonah is a sign of his gospel, of his resurrection. But, but there are also 40-day stories. 
Noah was in the ark for 40 days. Jesus began his ministry with 40 days in the desert, preparing for this great spiritual battle. Moses was out on Mount Sinai for 40 days before receiving the Ten Commandments. Elijah spent 40 days hiding from evil Queen Jezebel. And again, in the book of Jonah, Jonah Jonah's eight-word message gave a deadline of 40 days to repent before God's judgment. Jonah 3.4 says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So if three-day stories are this kind of microwaved hope, quick story of redemption, 40-day stories are slow cooker barbecue stories. It, it, and it's not, you understand, it's not the exact number of days that count. It, it's just that it, it's more than a moment, but it's less than a lifetime. It, it's long enough to disrupt our routine, but it's short enough to see there actually is an ending. I, I, I can see it coming. See, 40-day stories lead to times of preparation. I think the last 30-plus months have been a 40-day story. I mean, going in, we didn't know how long it was going to be, but we believed that an end was coming. I mean, how often did you hear me say, this is not a temporary interruption, it's a transitional disruption. It was a time of preparation for the chapter to come, God's next chapter. Even though we know there's an end, 40-day stories can be filled with transition, with steps of faith, filled with uncertainty and difficulty. They can cause us to wonder if it will ever end. I mean, that's why 40-day stories are also about times of perseverance. It's a don't-give-up kind of time. Make it to the ending. (laughs) A 40-day story isn't meant to be forever. If it goes for 40 years, it's because we missed our 40 days It isn't forever, but sometimes the darkness goes on long enough to seem like forever, and so it requires this sense of endurance, of perseverance. I'm not going to quit. You know, we're called to see the world with spiritual eyes. Sometimes what's unseen is more real than what we see. We're called to look through a biblical filter. I've been pondering this a lot the last few days, and here's what I think. I think the less me, more God journey that we started on January 1st, that's a a 40-day story. We prefer three-day stories, quick redemption, quick revival, microwaved hope, get back to normal as quickly as possible. Even if something within us is whispering that the old normal was abnormal, there's still this desire to return to normal ASAP. But what if back to normal isn't the way forward to God's next chapter? What if we need a 40-day story to get there? What if we need to dig, just sit and dig a bit deeper into our souls and Empty out more than we thought we might need to empty out. But what is it actually that happens in our 40-day story? We know one of the themes of the book of of Jonah that you have to dig a little bit to find is the theme of idols. Jonah's prayer in the belly of the well includes these words in Jonah 2.8. He says, those who cling, he's praying this to God. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. He's basically saying, that's not me, God. I I won't do that. I won't turn away from your love for me like those bad Ninevites. But you know, in the process, he's he's posting a definition of an idol that really ties into our less for more journey. See, an idol is, is anything that turns our hearts away from God's love, something we cling to. So our, our less for more journey has been a season it's a season of emptying out the idols. That's really what needs to go. What needs to be emptied is the idols. Now, what are idols? We're, well, idols are anything we rely on for blessing, strength, and life other than God. 
It's the stuff we cling to that causes us to turn away from God's love. It it fills us up and takes space away from God. It, It could be a spiritual relic from a sacred shine or an addiction. But you know, sometimes idols are more devious and and hard to spot because idols can be good things that have become God things. You you know what I mean, right? Tim Keller writes, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever, he said, whatever we build our lives on will drive and enslave us. Hey, think about it. This is one of the reasons why we have so many divisions, even in the church, but also in politics and our schools and, and in communities and neighborhoods. At least it's in, in part it's because our identity has become our idol. Political identity, sexual identity, gender identity, even racial identity. In his book, A Sickness Unto Death, Soren Kierkegaard defines sin as building our identity, our self-worth, and happiness on anything other than God. This is idolatry. Is our community filled with sexual brokenness? Of course. But the sin behind the sin is that people are looking to relationships to save them and satisfy them instead of God. Has our community worshipped at the shrine of the Nittany Lions? Certainly. But the idolatry is found in giving our hearts to a great institution rather than a great God. See, we're we're clinging to our faith and political power, even even our faith in our marriages and families to redeem us and satisfy us, our, our careers and our stuff, even our own ability to redeem whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And and most of those things aren't evil things, right? But when we try to put good things in the place of God, it it leads to anxiety and addictions and envy and bitterness and resentment. Fasting empties the idols. Fasting helps us uncling our hearts to the idols. Fasting helps us set aside the good things that have become God things. Fasting uncovers the restlessness of my heart. See, here's a good question to dive into. Where is my restlessness leading my heart? Where's my restlessness leading my heart? If it's not leading my heart to God, it's leading my heart to an idol. Listen, you were made with a hole in your heart that only God can fill. Everyone hungers and thirsts. It's a God thing. Having the desire is not a bad thing. It's a God thing. But if we cling to idols, the hunger becomes an addiction, and it leads this restlessness leads to things other than God. You, you can get addicted to anything, right? Social media, Netflix, food the approval of others, success at work, even a good cause. See, if it's a good thing that's not God, the hunger is never satisfied, so the idol becomes an addiction. But when we make space for God, our desires bring life. The desire, the hunger in and of itself is not bad. He created us with built-in desire. We all have a hunger in our soul, a restlessness, a desire to be satisfied. The question is, where are we going to get filled up? Now listen, there is a hunger and a thirst deep inside of you that nothing will touch, nothing except for Christ. And Christ is more than enough. I'm not merely saying he can do more than enough or that he has more than enough. I'm I'm saying that in and of his glorious self, he is more than enough. I'm saying that if you have Jesus and you have nothing else, you have more than enough. And if you have everything but Jesus, 
Your hunger for life will never be satisfied. So if my soul is so stuffed with the the small stuff of everything but Jesus, then here's the question. Am I willing to stop feeding at banquet tables where the main course is not Christ? I mean, if it's necessary, will we let go of the good to go after God? Do I have, and if not, do I want a gloriously gut-wrenching hunger for Christ? St. Augustine once imagined God making him an offer. He imagined God saying, to him, I will give you anything you desire, anything, perfect love, eternal peace. You'll never be afraid or alone. No confusion will enter your mind. No anxiety or boredom will enter your heart. You'll never lack for anything. There'll be no sin, no guilt, no rules, no expectations, no failure. You'll never be lonely or hurt. You'll never die, but you'll never see my face. You'll never have me. Would you take the deal? Honestly. Augustine said no. He said we are his and our hearts are restless until we find a rest in him. See, what our hearts hunger for is God. Tim Stafford, an author, had worked for about three months washing dishes in a Connecticut diner. And during a conversation with a waitress there, a George Harrison song, My Sweet Lord. Remember that one? My Sweet Lord came on the radio in the back room and hearing the words, My Sweet Lord, My my Sweet Lord, I, I really want to know you, I really want to know you, but it takes so long, my Lord. And, and when those words came on, the, the waitress immediately shared this religious, she de- described it as a religious experience she'd had the day before. She said, I, I was listening to that very same song, and as I listened, I, I burst helplessly into tears. She said to Tim Stafford, she said, why do you think I did that? Now, I can tell you why. It's because people are crying out, hungry for something that will satisfy their soul. I'm telling you, it's happening right now all over our community. And this is at the heart of our 40-day story. Please don't miss that. God is wooing us back to his heart. It's a call to uncling our hearts from idols and pay attention to God to make space for the soul-satisfying treasure of Christ. And, and that's where fasting comes in. On Jonah 3, 5 through 8, it says this, the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They fasted and they prayed. It says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he, he rose off of his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued. By the decree of the king, he said, and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. Let everyone call urgently on God. It became a season of emptying out idols. This is a season of emptying out idols, which comes from a season of fasting. I don't know. I, I just I can't get away from that last line. Let everyone call urgently on God. See, that's part of what fasting does. Fasting ignites a bit of urgency to our prayers. Now, that word urgency, it always has to do with time, right? A, A 40-day story is a story with a deadline. There's an ending, but it's also one of those moments, those God-ordained moments that, that must be seized, a season where in spite of the look of the circumstances, the windows of heaven are ready to pour out God's grace. Call urgently upon God. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but, but this is on my, my heart. I believe we're living in days of expectancy. It's time to call urgently on God. You know, during COVID, practically every pastor I know said, we're not going back to normal. Post-COVID, most of us had it as 
as back to normal as quickly as possible. But but 40-day stories are meant to lead to a new normal. New normals require change, and most change requires a certain sense of urgency. How urgent do you feel about making space for God? Is it kind of like, well, you know, this is a good thing, and one of these days I'm going to think more about it. How urgent are you about making space for God in you, in us, in, in our neighborhoods? Is it more of a, well, that, that'd be nice someday? Or is it more like the air you breathe without it, you're just not going to make it? Urgency may look different in you than it does in me, but a common feature of urgency is that it shapes our time and it shapes our attention. It directs our resources. With fasting and prayer, Nineveh urgently called upon God. And we find later in Jonah's story that filled with compassion and grace, God responded. And one of the greatest revivals in in history took place in one of the most wicked cities in history. You know, almost everyone knows the story of Jonah and the well. And those who are skeptical of the miraculous, they usually focus on the question of how could a whale do that? Tell you what, that doesn't even turn my head. My head is turned and my jaw drops because of the 40-day story of a city that fasted and prayed and urgently called upon God and was transformed by God's presence. What is urgent in your life right now? I played college football, Division Three, a long time ago. A little bit different from a Penn State football experience. A large crowd for us was maybe 2,000. Really large crowd, not, not 102,000. But, but when 2,000 people came, about 1,500 had to stand around the field because there wasn't enough room in the stands. I remember one homecoming, watching a game, going back to Bethel after I was done playing, watching a game, standing shoulder to shoulder with about 1,500 fans, standing in a crowd about 30 feet deep, spreading from one side of the end zone to the other. Lynn, we were married at the time. Lynn was tired of football, um, so she went shopping. Left the kids with me. I, I know, it's just terrible. She Only time she ever did it. <laughs> and I was standing there holding Katie, talking to friends, watching the game, and, and Sarah, uh, my oldest daughter, was standing right by my feet. She's about three years old. And at some point, I looked down at my feet, and, and Sarah's gone. I swear it's the only time... It ever happened, but I lost Sarah. My first thought was, if I don't find her, Lynn's going to kill me. <laughs> Lynn, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is Bethel won. The bad news is I lost our, our daughter. <laughs> and, and I'm standing there, honestly, I'm just imagining her crying and calling, crawling in between 3,000 feet. I couldn't see her anywhere. Or worse, some stranger grabbing her. And so, of course, I decided to just wait it out. You know, I figured I'd wait till everybody left, and then I'd find her because the game was really a pretty good game. I had plans to talk to friends, and it'll all work out. Absolutely not. I'm down on my hands and my knees, looking between knees for a little three-year-old girl. I was urgently unrelenting in my search for Sarah. I've got to find Sarah. That's the kind of urgency that God is calling for in our hearts right now. This is how he wants us to feel, how he wants us to seek him, like I have to find him. So often we talk about the battle in our lives between what's important and what's urgent, but in the 40-day story we find that what's important has suddenly become very urgent, and fasting brings a sense of urgency to the emptying. Listen, fasting is not a weight loss program, (laughs) Not, not as a spiritual discipline. If you use it to gain followers on Instagram, you might as well eat to your heart's content. Fasting will not help you become an influencer with God. It's not a hunger strike trying to force God's hand. 
Fasting is, is an acknowledgement, changes us. It's an acknowledgement that we long for his presence, that we hunger for holiness. Fasting is a serious cry to God that we're tired of playing church while broken people still don't know his love. Fasting is not just self-discipline, it's self-denial. It's the denial of something that we cannot long live without in the hopes of finding someone who will give us life forever. When we fast and pray with serious urgency, we're telling God that I'm done being safely full of stuff that will never satisfy, and I'm ready to risk the refiner's fire as long as it comes with the presence of the refiner. Let me just go back to where we started. Jesus. A longing for the presence of Jesus is at the very heart of every fast. In Matthew 9, verses 14 through 15, Matthew says, One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do in the Pharisees do? Everybody else is fasting. Why don't your disciples? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Then they will fast. Then we will fast. When we realize the emptiness of everything but Jesus, then we will fast. See, fasting focuses our hunger for Jesus. Fasting is an urgent cry for a new story. So here's my question. Will you join me in a 40-day story? A time of preparation, a time to empty out our idols, everything we cling to more than God, a time of fasting and prayer like Nineveh, crying out urgently to God, not just for you, for us. We've gone through this 50-day journey, but I'm calling us to a a 40-day story, a thousand days of fasting and prayer. So from February 22nd to April 6th, the, the season that most of us know as Lent, Could we together, the the Calvary movement, could we together fast and pray for at least a thousand days? You know, just a a couple hundred people who will fast and pray a day a week would give us a thousand plus. So so that card that I mentioned at the beginning, you you can take it out. And and even this weekend, we'll we'll have more time. This isn't going to start till the 22nd, but, but do it now. Fill it out. Give us the top half so we can encourage each other during Lent. A a normal fast would focus on food, and for many of us, that's a great place to start. That's one of the places I'm going to start. But your fast might be something else. What, What is cluttering up your time or filling up your heart or clogging your ears? See, at the heart of fasting is emptying. What do I need to empty out so that I can be filled with something better? So your card gives you an opportunity to say, I'm, I'm going to fast this many days over the course of this 40-day story, and here's what I'm going to fast from. And then the bottom part, you tear off the top half, and, or, or online, you'll, you'll be able to register, and the bottom half is, is a card with some prayer requests. Ask God to bring Nineveh to our, bring revival to our Nineveh. Pray for your hashtag. Ask the Spirit to fill up your life with life as you make space for God. Requests like that. I want to encourage you to consider joining us for a thousand days of prayer and fasting. I want to end today with a prayer from A.W. Tozier. That's the response of a heart. That was Tozier's heart, the heart that had this deep longing for God. So here's what he prayed. Just bow your head and listen to me. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O triune God, I, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. 
Show me your glory. I pray that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, God, say to my soul, rise up, my love, and come away. And then give me the grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.